This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 15th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In Ferguson, Missouri, the message has been heard a militarized response to protesters was inappropriate and very likely made a bad situation worse. The focus now should shift to how the federal government has enabled and encouraged this kind of reaction through subsidizing military-grade weapons for local cops. So says Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Uh, it's night and day as far as like the police response to the protesters. Uh, finally, people were paying attention to the, what the critics were saying is that the militarized response was a was a big mistake, and things went as they should be. You know, people got to protest and make their point, and there was very little violence and uh, and, and lawlessness. Uh, it was the way it should have been from the very beginning. But the impulse to engage in that type of response. You want to try to be able to understand why police felt that that was necessary, but it just seems like the biggest weapon you have is the one you bring out when there's any kind of violence. Right. I mean, the conservatives make a point in that, you know, you got to stop lawlessness and vandalism and that sort of stuff. But the prudent way to handle it would have been to have some of that equipment Uh, nearby, but in the trunks of cars. The problem was is they brought out their heavy weaponry at the very beginning before there had been any problems. And when they started shooting tear gas, that made a bad situation worse. And that's when people started getting angry and emotions started running high. And following some uh, folks on Twitter who are ex-military talking about tactics, that uh, one thing they learn is that your presence can escalate a situation with that type of armament. That's right. And that's why last night's response was, was so much better. Instead of greeting the crowd with helmets and shields and batons out and people sitting on top of armored vehicles with sniper weapons pointed at them, uh, it was just much de-escalated. Sidearms, officers dressed the way they normally dress, uh, walking along with the protesters. And I saw one report where the tactical commander was greeting people and hugging people, allowing them to make their point. That's that's how this thing should have been handled at the very beginning. Um, Yesterday, I think the governor finally stepped in, did the right thing by relieving that uh, commander, the police chief. I mean, there was just too many nights had gone by and he was out of his depth and finally uh, the governor stepped in. I think they should, he made the right step in relieving that commander. This morning, they're naming the police officer who was involved in the shooting. That's a good step. The next step that needs to be done is to bring in a special prosecutor uh, to handle the case. There was a variety of uh, responses by politicians. Of course, the Washington Post sort of hilariously said, where are the libertarians talking about this? And then uh, referred to two Republicans and a journalist who does a once weekly show. And uh, of course, the Cato Institute in particular has been doing work on this for what, a decade? Yeah, that's some point I've been making. I was on that person's uh, show this morning and I pointed out that uh, Cato published a paper in 1999 called Warrior Cops, the Ominous Growth of Paramilitism paramilitarism in American police departments. So it's been going on a long time. A lot of people think it started uh, with the Occupy protests. Others think it started with 9-11. It actually started uh, in the late 80s and early 1990s. And we've been calling attention to this problem since 
1999. And Radley Balco followed up uh, in 2006 with his study, Overkill, and then has since published uh, an entire book called The Rise of the Warrior Cop. So we've been on this story for a long, long time. Just to get some, uh, some background details, when this began in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, I think Radley Balco details it pretty well in his book, uh, Daryl Gates in, in Los Angeles seems to have been somebody who realized something other people didn't realize, that this was a, a would be a popular tool among cops. Right. And he, the other interesting thing is the, he, he initially proposed that they be called special weapons attack teams. That was, it was his idea of what SWAT stood for. But somebody else within the department recognized that that was not a uh, that was not going to be a very appealing name for them, so they changed uh, the name of, of, of SWAT to, to, to something else. But yeah, Daryl Gates in LAPD, he's the one that started it. And then since then, we've been noting two very important points. Is first, the, these SWAT paramilitary units are no longer just in the major metropolitan areas. Our small towns have them now. And the second thing is that they were originally created for special extraordinary situations like a hostage situation. Uh, but the, the mission has grown far beyond that, and we've got these paramilitary units into more routine policing activity, including the execution of search warrants for nonviolent drug offenses. And that's why this thing is so disturbing. We've got these paramilitary units going out hundreds of times a month executing warrants. And the people in suburban America, they don't see this or feel this. It's the, the minorities have born bear the brunt of a lot of these types of tactics along with stop-and-frisk tactics in, in, in the inner city. And that's why there's kind of that little bit of a disconnect where in the African-American community, they are boiling over uh, over these heavy-handed police responses. And people in the suburbs kind of don't know what's going on. They don't understand it as much. As I talked with uh, Walter Olson about this yesterday, there are essentially two uh, federal programs that are uh, broadly specifically for the purpose of providing this type of weaponry to local police. That's right. Uh, most of the local police departments acquire this stuff from the Department of Defense through a program called 1033. That's how they're getting their hands on this type of stuff. And in the wake of the Michael Brown killing, uh, President Obama has you know, been compelled to make public statements about the case, one thing he can do as the ordinary local processes take their course is move on this program. He can, he should bring Rand Paul to the White House and say, you know, you're concerned about the militarization, so am I, and they should get behind a bill to shut down this program. That is something that uh, the president and these federal lawmakers can do. The politicians are beginning to come out of the woodwork now because of this heavy media coverage, and they're condemning what Americans are seeing, this heavy militarized approach in Ferguson. But like the NSA disclosures, we have to see what comes out of this. We're getting a lot of the talk now, say this isn't right, but we've got to see the change in the policies, and that's where our, our focus needs to be uh, going forward. So the, the Department of Defense program, but there's a separate Department of Homeland Security program that uh, is 
for this type of equipment as well. That's right. Uh, there's there's two programs. One is the Department of Defense. Other uh, the other one is Homeland Security that kind of makes grants available to police departments to purchase uh, weapons which these local police departments don't even need. Tim Lynch is the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. You can read more of the Cato Institute's work on police militarization and criminal justice reform at our website, cato.org.